0: Hi folks, Neil here. We want to help answer all your questions about London. That's why you can listen to this guide in the Circa app for iPhone and get all the show notes, pictures, maps, and links you need to find everything we tell you about in this London guide. Best of all, in the Circa app, you can message a Circa concierge. You can get any question about London answered by real people right here. The latest galleries, West End shows, how to do the big attractions right. How to use the tube. Where to find an absolutely beautiful Sunday roast right now. We are giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, no AI ever. And for a limited time, it's completely free. The Circuit Travel app is available in the App Store right now or at circuittravel.com.
1: Welcome to Circa. This is the second episode of our epic walk back through London's musical past and present. If you haven't listened to the first part, we suggest you do that now. During this episode, we'll be zoning in on some amazing venues, music halls, little backstreet clubs and lesser-known musical pubs that have helped to shape the rich, pulsating music scene you'll find here today. We're going to tell you a lot, but don't worry. There'll be maps, notes and info on the places mentioned in these episodes in the Circa app. So, whether you're in London to catch your favourite rock band at the Camden Roundhouse, or you'd love to learn where the best secret spot is for a foot-tapping live jazz session, welcome. This is what we do. So just sit back, put your headphones on and enjoy the ride. Ready to rock and roll? Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. In part one, we left you at the world's most famous recording studios, Abbey Road in North London, a place where John, Paul, George and Ringo got their strut on a pedestrian crossing, and where some of the biggest stars in rock and roll made albums that continue to be the most played in modern history. Now we're going to feast our ears on the sounds of the 60s and beyond when Ziggy Stardust, Bob Marley, Sid Vicious and a host of other musical outliers made their own indelible mark on the city. Ready for a second dose of the Sounds of London? The arrival of Ziggy Stardust. One homegrown Londoner, hot on the heels of the Beatles, was the one and only David Bowie. Born in the Afro-Caribbean community of Brixton, Bowie bridged many musical worlds and soaked up a mass of foreign influence, from the dark edges of Bohemia to the urban noir of the velvet underground, the mod undertones of the Beatles the psychedelic prog rockers Pink Floyd, or the synth pop electronica of German group Kraftwerk. Defying every single label, Bowie ripped up the rulebook of sexual identity, celebrity, and, of course, what it meant to be a true artist. He was more than a showman, though. He saw music as a narrative and adopted so many made-up personas, you could argue that Bowie was his very own musical and artistic muse. Whatever your musical leaning, This Brixton-born chameleon helped dissolve London's, and the world's, musical limitations, jumping from synth rock to pop and jazz and never missing a beat. You can discover a beautiful mural of Ziggy himself just off Brixton High Street. It's gathered some thoughtless graffiti over the years since Bowie's passing in 2016, but there's far more messages and tributes to this musical genius and his influence on the global music scene. Find it directly opposite Brixton Tube Station just off the main road. Let's go central and retrace Ziggy's steps. Just east of Soho Square and off Charing Cross Road in central London is a street that most passers-by wouldn't associate with the inner workings of London's music industry, Denmark Street. Denmark Street was the first street in London where sheet Music was published back in 1911. It then came to host Melody Maker, the music industry's seminal magazine. Other publishers, recording studios and music shops moved into the street and it quickly gained a reputation as London's own Tim Pan Alley, the nickname for New York's equivalent cluster of music publishers in the early 20th century. The Rolling Stones recorded their first album here. Paul Simon, Stevie Wonder, Oasis, The Sex Pistols and many others laid down tracks in this very street. A young Bowie, then known as Davy Jones loved hanging out at the coffee shop here, La Giaconda Cafe. He'd nursed strong espressos with fellow glam rocker Mark Bolan from T-Rex, who coaxed him out of his introverted shell to go out and grab 70s London by the Bell Bottoms. By the way, he changed his name from David Jones to Bowie because he didn't want to be confused with Davy Jones from the band The Monkees. Sadly, there's no chance of reliving the espressos and psych folk strings of Bowie's space oddity here because the cafe no longer exists. But if you walk down this street, you'll see one of London's many important heritage blue plaques, erected in 2014 to mark the Gioconda Cafe's meeting place for publishers and songwriters. Cruise a few blocks west and into Soho and you'll hit the bustling Dean Street. Here, there's an iconic basement hair salon, Cuts. It's been attracting and chopping the tresses of many different names in British music royalty for years. Including, of course, Bowie, who would smoke cigarettes on salon chairs while he waited. It opened in 1979, originally as a punk barbershop, and grew in popularity with celebrities, stylists and the bands and musicians who embodied the glam rock and new romantics movement. It was a place for creative pioneers and remains like that to this day. If you pop in for a snip, you might spot Goldie or Naina Cherry or other famous faces getting their hair styled here. While Bowie and his chameleon-like creative genius could be said to have come from outer space, another kind of outlier also landed in London in 1977. A person who fled from his country in search of safety and success, it could only be the one and only Dreadlock Rasta, Bob Marley. Number 42, Oakley Street, in London's posh Chelsea neighbourhood, is a spot that spawned the songs and sentiments of one of the most important albums to come out of the 70s. So
0: the teaching of his majesty is, is is a truth towards mankind. It's not in no war or nothing. It's a teaching, you know. No, this is a teaching.
1: I don't know about you, but Bob Marley's Exodus seems to have followed me around various chapters of my entire adult life. Living in different countries and homes, navigating different peaks and troughs, Bob's songs have filled the gaps on the good days and the bad. Exodus is proof that music is like true love, it transcends time and space. Marley had come to London off the back of an assassination attempt in his home of Jamaica. Seven men raided Bob's home in December 1976. They shot Marley's wife in the head, Bob in the chest, and his manager in the legs and torso. Miraculously, no one died. But it was enough to make Bob flee the country and inspire the album he and his band made during their time in Chelsea, Exodus. The album catapulted him to global stardom.
0: Imperial majesty, Imbran-
1: For a few years, Chelsea was Bob's safe haven. He'd already signed to music mogul Chris Blackwell's Island Records, who'd taken a punt on Bob's band and funded the record Catch a Fire. Bob and his band were settled with Blackwell's help into this leafy, luxe part of London, where you'll find posh residents and celebrities, as well as high end shops and one of London's best Premier League football clubs. It's also close to the wonderful Battersea Park. Apparently, Marley asked to be somewhere close to football pitches so he and his band members could make the short trip over the Albert Bridge to kick a ball about in between their jam sessions. It's in this street that you'll find yet another blue plaque commemorating the dreadlock raster and his contribution to London's rich music scene. The late 70s era in London was also primed for another rising sound. Punk. The name Punk is actually from Detroit, and it perfectly captures the sound of the Stooges and MC5. Laced with chaos and estrangement, frustration and anti-authoritarian ideologies, Punk flipped the bird at the cleaned up pop music and the glam rock of the earlier years. Iggy Pop, the New York Dolls, Bowie and the Velvet Underground, they all laid the groundwork for London to lap up this new noise with gusto. By the way, even if they seem poles apart, reggae and punk weren't so different from each other in London's politically charged 70s. They both got cooked up out of youthful rebellion and social action. For London's new generation, both were an angry, urgent breath of fresh air. It was also an unpredictable pairing in the face of the city's enduring racial tensions. In 1978, a massive musical movement took root. Rock Against Racism. Many big name punk and reggae bands came together for a Rock Against Racism concert in East London's Victoria Park. Their chemistry and contrast offered up the best example of diversity and inclusion on stage. And the movement encouraged more explicit acts of solidarity amongst anti-racist skinheads who wore Rock Against Racism badges and helped overthrow the presumptions about their seeming right-leaning aesthetic. Meanwhile, Rastafarian Londoners were welcomed with open arms into punk gigs. But the biggest unlikely punk-reggae exchange was happening in real life. The Sex Pistols' Johnny Rotten traded places with Bob Marley and travelled to Jamaica to meet reggae artists, while Bob Marley hung out on the King's Road. The result was Marley's punky reggae party record, the B-side to the smash hit Jamming.
0: Because the Sex Pistols was going to be the absolute end of rock and roll. I thought it was. Unfortunately, the majority of the public, being the senile animals that they are, got that wrong. Too bad. All they want is an image, something flash.
1: The Sex Pistols were the ultimate British pin-up anarchists, with frontman Johnny Rotten and bassist Sid Vicious living up to everything the establishment wanted to tear down. (laughs) Britpunk differed from American punk. It was more political, more angry. But whatever side of the Atlantic you were listening on, both stripped back the excessive theatrics, harps and long-drawn-out chords of the psych-rock era and exposed something shorter, punchier, purer. London's Soho and Carnaby Street were once again ground zero for the scene, as was Camden, to the north of the city centre, and ultra-posh Chelsea, where our favourite raster was staying. Bob would often hang out with the Clash in Chelsea's famous King's Road, and it wasn't uncommon to see the Sex Pistols or the Clash swaggering down Carnaby Street on the hunt for Doc Martin boots or a studded belt and skinny black Levi's. They loved causing a riot on Carnaby Street and whipping the paparazzi into a frenzy. Close by, also in the heart of this central London postcode, is the legendary birthplace of British rock, the 100 Club, on Oxford Street. The venue was originally a swing club in the 40s for the likes of big American blues maestros like Muddy Waters and B.B. King. Small, sweaty and independently run, it was perfectly placed for punk's explosion in the late 70s. It also held a watershed punk festival back in September of 76, the 100 Club Punk Special. The Sex Pistols, The Clash, Susie and the Banshees, The Buzzcocks. He stormed the stage with improvised recitals and total recklessness over two hedonistic days. The event and the venue managed to push punk rapidly from the sidelines of subculture firmly into the mainstream. It was a massive triumph, except for a violent accident featuring the Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious, who threw a beer glass into the crowd, blinding a young woman during the dam's performance sid vicious quickly cemented his reputation for rage and fury all around london's punk venues during the band's short two and a half year lifespan today the lineup is broad and the vibe still atmospheric albeit a bit more tame check the notes for the links to the clubs we're talking about in this episode plus some others we think you'll want to know about As the punk scene burned itself up, sped on by addictions, rehab, and plenty of inter-band conflict, groups and musicians splintered, exploded, or evolved into slippery new subgenres: new wave, no wave, and also the new romantics, a style-obsessed synth-pop subculture that was as much about style as it was substance. The soundtrack to a city going through never-ending shifts in gender norms. Radical sexual politics, rapid technological change, growing political tensions and an emerging acid house and warehouse rave scene. 80s prog rock, metal and emerging electronica. The Blitz Club in central London's Covent Garden. Tuesday night, the sound pumping out of the DJ booth was German synth-pop Kraftwerk, or Bowie's Heroes, or Wham, Duran Duran, Culture Club, Visage, Spandar Ballet, and the Human League. This was one of the defining clubs that helped to spawn London's early 80s electronic music club culture. During a time when the UK's economic austerity and political landscape was actually a major downer, The neon eyeshadow Blitz kids were blurring genders, subverting aesthetics and donning frilly blouses, androgynous suits and spiky mohawks as they hit the dance floor. Talk about a distraction. They pushed theatrics and flamboyance farther than ever before. In the 80s, the area around Covent Garden was badly lit, dingy and isolated. But the Blitz and the Wag Club, just around the corner in Soho's Wardour Street both promised a chance to play dress-up and to dance to the beat of something different in a moment when most of London felt pretty flat. Today, this part of town is a shopping mecca and ground zero for the ornate-covered Covent Garden Piazza, London's first official public square garden that dates back to the 1600s. You'll find yourself surrounded by throngs of professional shoppers and theatre-goers heading to some of London's best shows and musicals. Don't miss the chance whilst you're here for a snoop around the ornate-domed Covent Garden Royal Opera House. Whether you're keen to catch a performance of Carmen, Madame Butterfly or something more modern, the lineup of opera and ballet here is impressive. The first theatre opened here in 1732, so there's been a theatrical flair propping up this neighbourhood for a long, long time. These theatrics also found themselves onto the 80s dance floors here, which kept growing as fast as the technology that enabled this music to evolve. But that wasn't the only in-vogue sound. Progressive rock and heavy metal kept creeping onto London's radio shows too. Primed by 70s metalists Black Sabbath, Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin, the lust for long hair, skin-tight leather pants, spandex and spiked wristbands was officially upon London. For London metalheads in the 80s, and right up till today, there's one venue that's worth headbanging for – Camden's Electric Ballroom. Camden, in London's northwest, is packed with musical heritage. Since the 1800s, it's been known for its concentration of knockout venues, bars and music halls, all of them magnets for incredible bands. Expect to see your fair share of leather-clad goths, punks and steampunks hanging out in this hood, especially down by the canal on Camden Lock. This vibrant spot used to be a wharf with stables, and it's a vital point on the river where boats go through paired locks to safely traverse hills and gradients in the river. Physics aside, this spot is a great place to spy some really pretty canal barges, and also dive into Camden Lock's world-famous market, a mass of ethnic food stalls, arts, crafts and bohemian fashion. Here you'll also spot the grubby canal-side bar, the Powerhouse, formerly Dingwalls. It used to be an old timber yard but got transformed in 73 into a dance hall that was for a while the longest bar in London. It's tiny, just a 500 person capacity, but it's hosted some of the biggest bands on earth, including The Clash, The Stones and members of Pink Floyd, who also came here for pints and mischief when they weren't playing. More recently, the stage has seen Noel Gallagher, the Foo Fighters, the Strokes, Caribou and Wolf Alice perform. Oh, and Blondie's UK debut album was first played here to a chaotic London crowd, allegedly It was one of the most debauched nights the bar ever saw. Today, there's live music and performances pretty much every night of the week, leaning towards more indie rock, folk, and modern jazz, but the odd hip hop artist has been known to swing by. Check the programme beforehand, and booking ahead is recommended. As the 80s drew to a close, two sibling musicians from the northern UK city of Manchester were starting to make a name on the London rock and roll circuit. They were smart enough to knock on the door of the electric ballroom too and demand a gig. Liam and Noel.
0: Yeah, we know, which is why people go on about our arrogance or self-confidence or whatever, but there's only five people in the the country who know where the the music's going and that's us and we know it's, it's better than this album.
1: Know these two? Loudmouths brothers from Manchester, with an arrogant swagger that would soon become copied the world over. With a few other key bands from London and up north, their band, Oasis, helped to usher in the age of Britpop and what quickly became known in the UK press as Royal Britannia. We've now arrived in the mid 90s and London's venues were ready to get blown open all over again.
0: Hi everyone. Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up.
1: 90s indie, Britpop and the sound of the underground. Let's stay in Camden, because as much as Camden was the epicentre for 60s rock, where punk was spawned in the 70s and where metalers thrashed their way into the 80s, this bohemian postcode also showed up in the 90s when it became the stomping ground for Britpop's most famous faces. The year was 1994. The Seattle grunge scene was raging stateside. Meanwhile, London's own music scene was going through some major shifts. Those loud boys I just mentioned, the Gallagher brothers, and their band, Oasis, stormed onto the charts with a breakthrough album, Definitely Maybe, and found themselves face-to-face with rival Brit band, Blur. The press made a massive deal out of it, and the band members rose to the occasion. They released their singles on the same days to see who could sell more, They threw out insults at awards ceremonies and they mocked each other openly in London pubs. The media prayed like vultures and the 90s gossip magazines had a frenzy.
0: British blue, you know what I mean? It took them five years to get number one, right? It took us 12 months, yeah. Liam likes to be more in your face than I do. But I'm hard.
1: And the whole country took sides. Oasis had my vote. Then there was the indie pop spin-off Pulp, and the angst-saturated Radiohead and the moody, trippy Porter's Head. And of course, the bright pop of the best-selling female band in history, the Spice Girls. Each band marketed as quintessentially British, with the Union Jack plastered across guitars and wardrobes. These bands sang of greasy spoons, fruit machines, friendships gone wrong, and modest suburban England in the 90s. People could relate. And it wasn't just a time for Britannia and 60s-inspired guitar riffs. There was a less squeaky clean, less mainstream, and, for me, a more substantial sound that also had its zenith in this decade and in the city. Electronic dance music, trip-hop and drum and bass all bubbling up in many different experimental guises. The Chemical Brothers, Tricky, Orbital, Goldie... Left field, massive attack, the prodigy. And for the briefest of moments, from the underground to the commercial masses, everyone was into all of it. Let's head to the grade two listed Primrose Hill, just north of Camden. This part of the city is home to Creation Records, the label that catapulted Oasis to fame pretty much overnight. It's also one of the city's most desirable, A-list haunted neighbourhoods, and it's a quick 10-minute stroll west of Camden. After Creations HQ moved into Regent's Park Road, where Stucco townhouses elegantly slice through Primrose Hill, this quiet, refined postcode experienced a new kind of popularity. Don't look back in anger, he sang, but when Oasis star Liam Gallagher got into a row with a photographer, he did look back, turned angry and swung round. He then punched the paparazzi and swore at him
0: like a trooper. The
1: Gallagher brothers and their high-profile celebrity entourage, nicknamed the Primrose Hill Set, entertained London's paparazzi, which splashed them across the tabloids on a near-daily basis. Primrose Hill's association with fame and celebrity remains today. It's not uncommon to see Gwyneth Paltrow, Daniel Craig, or Harry Styles popping by the gourmet delis on Regent's Park Road. Don't be surprised if you get mistakenly papped by some photographer lurking in the bushes. When Oasis songwriter Noel Gallagher bought a seven-bedroom house round the corner from Primrose Hill in Belsize Park and christened it Supernova Heights, inspired by the band smash hit Champagne Supernova, this part of London, and its housing prices, changed forever. Retrace the steps of the Gallagher brothers in their many pint-fueled evenings, and a few reported fights with the paparazzi, naturally, in the Pembroke Castle pub. You'll find it by walking up the Chalk Farm Road and over the graffiti splattered bridge. Right. Let's take a quick walk to a building that's probably got more historic musical kapow than most of North London's pubs put together, the Camden Roundhouse. This building's been through its fair share of disrepair to become the dazzling performance art space you'll find here today. Back in the 1800s, the original Roundhouse building first operated as a great circular engine house, to manoeuvre steam engines coming into the city from up north. It also stored gin and wine from 1867 to 1957, before reopening in 1964 as a performing arts venue and event space. The Who, The Stones, T-Rex and Fleetwood Mac all played sell-out shows here in the 60s. These bands laid the foundations for punk and post-punk to enter the scene in the 1970s and helped the venue earn its rock and roll stripes in no time. But the roundhouse also went through major decline and became derelict in the era of Britpop. It instead found itself as the location for a week-long illegal rave in 1991 by EDM organisation Spiral Tribe. Today, you'll not find any illegal shenanigans going on here, but you will find great acoustics and loads of ambience. Make sure you grab your tickets in advance. Whoever you catch on tour, you're in for an amazing night. Camden's getting a lot of attention in this episode, but please don't think I've got any bias. Actually, who am I kidding? I do. I used to live four doors down from the back-to-black songstress Amy Winehouse. She lived in a big Georgian townhouse in Camden Square, wedged in between Primrose Hill and Camden, Her death shocked the entire neighbourhood and the world. A mountain of flowers, toys and poems, along with the press, piled up outside her house for months. I also love this part of the city. Its pubs, its creativity, its perfect mixture of leafy and luxurious coupled with grubby, bohemian energy. Music oozes from Camden's every pore. And no matter the decade it continues to act as a magnet for bands, including many of London's biggest millennial musicians. Razorlight, The Kooks, The Arctic Monkeys, The Libertines, Amy Winehouse, Franz Ferdinand, Block Party. They stormed the charts with a new kind of garage rock revival and slick, skinny-jeaned indie sleaze inspired by the likes of Joy Division, The Clash and Queens of the Stone Age. They also frequented many of Camden's most notorious rock and roll pubs, including the legendary Hawley Arms on Castlehaven Road. The second floor has hosted many amazing small, intimate gigs over the years. And many a musician, including Winehouse herself, has been known to climb over the bar and start pulling pints for punters. The venue today has a stellar lineup of indie and folk bands that play above the main bar. Most events are free, and hey, you might be watching the next unsigned band before they hit the big time. Just down the road, and also in Camden, the Dublin Castle pub has managed to earn a musical name for itself. It's nothing much to look at from the outside, but Brit Band Madness put it on the map in 1979 with a raucous weekly residency that attracted scores of fans and famous queues all around the block. The record companies started to set up and take notice, and their packed-out musical gigs helped the castle become a firm North London musical stalwart. It's never looked back. It was in the castle that the late Amy Winehouse struck up a great friendship with legendary landlady Peggy Conlon. Many onlookers argue that an intimate impromptu performance put on by Amy in the pub's back room as part of the well-known music festival The Camden Crawl was one of the best performances of her short life. You'll find the Dublin Castle on Parkway, a main thoroughfare road just off Camden High Street. Come here on any night of the week and you'll be treated to the sounds of London's next big bands and musicians keeping Camden on the right side of cool. Another venue frequented by the likes of Winehouse and Arctic Monkeys frontman Alex Turner is the unmissable Union Chapel you'll find this spectacular venue in Islington, a short walk east from Camden. Now, this has got to be my favourite place for music in the city. A working Gothic church and entertainment space, this award-winning, not-for-profit venue hosts a line-up of diverse classical and contemporary music performances that often take place by candlelight. Brilliant acoustics and a lovely veggie cafe and bar for homemade refreshments in between performances Order a red wine and take a seat in the candlelit pews before you let the velvety acoustics wash over you. This venue has seen the full gamut here, including Beck, Elton John, Noel Gallagher, U2 and Adele, who was more than happy to stand in the pulpit and deliver her power ballads to a spellbound audience. Best of all, the profits from tickets go back into the restoration of the chapel. Don't miss this one. The Sounds of the Streets, Grimes Global Takeover. Like most things in London, diversity and outside influence have always been the ingredients that add flavour to the city and make it the London you'll experience today. Culture and ethnicity, for sure, but economics too. Put bluntly, London's broad ethnic spectrum is matched by a massive polarity in wealth and poverty. Canary Wharf in East London is a great example of both sides of the spectrum in the same place. It's an epicentre for finance and wealth, but just as much a postcode for council flats, crime and desperation. Q, Grime. It's impossible not to bring you to this side of the city without talking about East London's most unapologetic sound – If you're unfamiliar with grime music, it began back in the early 2000s... ...but has become London's biggest musical calling card around the world today. No small feat. And the face of it? Well, there's more than one. But Brit, Dizzy Rascal, Stormzy, Wiley and Skepta are major players. Grime is 100% London town. Back in the early days, kid producers, especially prominent names like Rough Squad's Rapid and Dirty Danger... Cut beats in their East London bedrooms using Hewlett Packard software borrowed from school. They create music from video game samples, overlay verses, then get them out onto London's biggest pirate radio stations, Deja Vu, Major FM, and Rinse, all headquartered in the neighbourhood of Bow in East London. An underground audience quickly grew. Lyrics were spun about life lived in the rough-and-ready tower blocks around Bow and Canary Wharf and the often harsh realities of life on London streets. Grime music isn't neat or perfectly packaged. It's rough and shouty and so much more than just beats. It was originally created by East London musicians as a means to express their views and struggles in society today. And today, grime is a major sound across London and beyond. But that doesn't mean finding a small, intimate rap and grime battle is easy. Don't worry, we'll get to that. Some music maestros consider it the most significant expression of true British music since punk in the 70s. But to be honest, Grime's underground music scene kind of blows punks out of the water.
0: The 2016 Hyundai Mercury Prize to go to... Skepta!
1: Skeptis Konnichiwa won the Mercury Music Prize for the best album released in the UK in 2016. He beat out Radiohead and David Bowie, by the way.
0: South London-born
1: Stormzy is one of the biggest freestyle grime rap artists with a global fan base. The characteristic 140 BPM and sub-bass sound isn't going anywhere. And even though it's spawned its own sub-genres in places as far-flung as South Korea and as close as France, it'll always have London at its core. Pretty much all of Grime's biggest faces weave in lyrics about London's postcodes and locations as easily as a black cab driver taking you south of the river. So, where do we go for a battle-off? XO-Wire, in East London's Shoreditch neighborhood. Located down a nondescript cobbled road just two minutes' walk from Old Street Tube, XoYo is one club that does eclectic very well. All music feels at home here in this intimate venue. From R&B to deep house, garage to hip-hop, and of course, grime. It's known for its legendary grime nights and has residencies for electronic grime and garage artists. Go upstairs to the green room and check out the bass, as loud and as detailed as any good grime artist deserves. Oh. And the door guys will hand you small cards upon entry, asking you not to use your phones or take pictures on the dance floor. After all, isn't the best bit about a gig that you get lost in the music? Not your iPhone. Too right. When you come to London for its music, it's worth you being present for every single note of it. Because London is a place that makes and is made of the kind of music that really does make the world go round. Thanks for listening to the London Music episode. If you fancy listening to our soundtrack of London... We've created an epic playlist to accompany these episodes. You'll find it in the notes. We hope some of the spaces and places got you in the mood for music, and perhaps even dancing the night away. You'll be able to find all the maps, notes and info about the places we've told you about, plus some others we think you might want to put on your itinerary, all in the Circa app. Whether you're heading to London right now, sometime in the near future, or you'd just like to learn about a place we truly love, you'll get instant access to the full guide, plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. Maybe you'll want to check out our guides for Rome, Costa Rica, Iceland, and many, many more. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it.